Well, we are continuing in our series on scary love. Today we're going to be looking at a very small portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, just verses 4 through 5. But before we dig into the word together, let us pray. Father, we are thankful for your love. We, th- we are thankful that when we seek you, you hear and you do answer. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will fall fresh upon us this morning. As we open up your word, that it will not just be for the sake of information. Information is good, but God, we ask for transformation. As we learn what you have for us and we put it into practice, that is living the word of God. I pray that you'll be with us this morning in your name. Amen. Amen. Many of you may know that I talk about my kids from the pulpit, and I want you to know that they're at the age where I ask them if I can share these stories, all right, so I don't get in trouble. Well, I remember one time when Liam was a baby. Now, something you need to know about Liam that maybe you don't know is that he is a very high emotional young man. He, he, when he's mad, he's, he's really mad. When he's happy, he's really happy. And when he's sad, he's really sad. We actually gave him the name the Hulk when he was younger, right? The Hulk and Bruce Banner, because we never know which one we're going to get. Sometimes he's going to be the Hulk and he's going to flare up. And then we just ask him, could you please just be Bruce Banner for a moment? Now, if any of you know Marvel Comics at all, Bruce Banner's the mild-mannered, calm doctor who all of a sudden becomes the Hulk when he's mad, okay? That's just a little bit of an explanation. One day, he and Amelia were sitting down, and they were on the couch watching a show together. Amelia, she loves her her little brother. She mothers him, even though she wanted a sister, not a brother. She cares for him. She was sitting there watching something on her device, and Liam toddled up to her with his milk cup, and he sat down and started watching with her. She put her arm around him and was just excited to have him there. But then, Liam, as he was drinking his milk, realized his cup was empty. Now, if you know anything about an empty cup for babies, that can make them a little sad if they wanted more. So he, all of a sudden, just raged out really quickly and was like, ah! And he hit Amelia in the head with his cup. This was not a fun moment. I walk in on this scene, and I'm wondering what in the world happened. And I take Liam and Amelia into my arms, and we have a conversation about what had happened. Amelia, rightfully so, wanted him to be punished for three years for this act of of violence. And Liam still can't even speak words yet. He just makes noises. And so I talked to him, and I said, no, you don't do that. And he began to cry, right? He went from ragey to very weepy very quickly. And Amelia was still frustrated, and I said, listen, Liam can't talk yet, Amelia. So when he cries like this, that's his way of saying sorry. Not because he was in trouble, it was because he hurt his sister. And so we had a moment of teachability, and Amelia immediately forgave him. I got more milk in his cup, and they went back to their show together, right? Now, I share that because we all experience types of brokenness in our lives where there is pain that is caused by someone else. Where there's situations that we come up against, and we need to make sure that we forgive well. We're going to be looking at that in this passage. We all live with this brokenness, however. We all have a uh, difficult time loving people. And I think the reason why this is, it stems from discontent. Because many times we are discontent with who we are and what we have. We're discontent with who we are 
and what we have. And so that discontentment, this lack of love even for ourselves, spills out into our lack of love of others. Or we run out of milk and we rage out and we hurt people, right? Because we don't have what we feel like we need. We feel entitled to something more than what we have. And this entitlement kind of rules the way in which we live our lives. But we must remember one fact about life. And that is that we are entitled to nothing. We're entitled to nothing. I think when we live in this culture that we live in, where it's all about who we are, it's about what you can get, it's all about how you can move forward, whatever the phrase may be, have it your way, whatever it is, we have this sense that we are entitled to things. But as we look in Scripture and we recognize who we are and we re realize why the cross was significant, it's because we had nothing, we could offer nothing, God offered everything. And this was His love. We are entitled to nothing. But because we are human, we tend to think that this life is about us. We tend to think that the way in which the world should approach us is worshipful. <laughs> that everything should work out for me, that everything should be happy, that everything should be good all of the time. And when it's not, our discontentment hinders our ability to love. I know that Paul, as he's talking with the Corinthians, is trying to shake them up a little bit outside of their entitlement. And he shares with them this reality, that true love cannot exist without surrendering our entitlement. True love cannot exist without surrendering our entitlement. Some of you right now who are note takers, you're like, wow, that's three in about two minutes. This is fast. Relax. It's not that fast. These are, these are imperative points I want you to capture as we move into what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. Surrendering entitlement is the only way that we can truly love one another. Surrendering entitlement is the only way that we can truly live in community. Because if we're trying to be in community, as we, as Indiana Alliance Church, are a Christ-centered community for refuge, restoration, and relationship, this is our new focus, but not new focus, because it's just a change in syntax and shrinking down some of the things that we have already put into our vision statement. But if we're to be a Christ-centered community, we need to surrender our entitlement. If we are to love people, to give them a space as to be a refuge, we must surrender our entitlement. If we are going to be a, a place and a people who help draw the restoration of Christ into the lives of others, we must surrender our entitlement. And if we are to be a Christ-centered community for relationship, we must surrender our entitlement. See a theme? It cannot be about us. But too often when it comes to love or our idea of love, it becomes all about us. Everything we have is a gift from God. As I said in a prayer for offering, the very breath we have in our lungs is a gift from God. So we are entitled to nothing, but we are called to surrender that sense of entitlement in order to truly love. Love is scary this way. So we must ask the question, why is true love scary? And then how do we practice it? The whole series for five weeks, last week and then this week and then the three to follow, is titled Scary Love. Because the love that we are called to from Scripture 
not just in 1 Corinthians 13, but the love we are called to is scary because as humans, it goes against what we want. It goes against our entitlement. And so it's scary. So we're just reading two verses. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 5. Paul says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now, you're saying, how in the world could you unpack that for this morning? And it, it actually becomes a sermon. Well, each word, are, 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 each word is important for us to look at closely because we don't fully understand the, the Greek of what Paul is saying. And so this is not going to be all Greek to you. I'm going to explain it. Wow, that was a funny joke. No one got it. Love is patient. We talked about patience last week being this sense of suffering long, where we know that we are going to suffer in love, but now he moves to kindness. And we see that true love is scary because true love causes kindness to kick in. True love causes kindness to kick in. Now, when we talk about kindness in our cultural society, when you think of kindness, the, the, the first thing that's a synonym that comes to your mind is probably nice, right? When you go into the store and you open the door for someone, you were kind. When you have a conversation with someone and they're just not getting it and you patiently walk them through and you're being nice, you're, you're kind. Right? You walk into a building and you have a smile on your face because even though you're frustrated, you want to be nice to people. So you feel like you're kind. But the word for kind is not niceness. Now, we do need to be nice to one another. But the word that Paul is utilizing here in the Greek does not have that sense of niceness because it's easy to be nice. We can put on a false front for a moment or for a time. It's easy to be nice, but that's not what Paul is talking about. When he says love is kind, he's talking about something much richer, much deeper. And so we need to unpack what does that mean. The Greek word for kind here also means to be merciful. To be merciful. Now mercy and kindness, they don't seem to be the same the same word, but in this Greek context, it is mercy and kindness. They go hand in hand because it's not talking about the cultural idea of being nice. It's about being merciful. Now, mercy is a little bit more difficult to swallow than being nice because mercy is a heart change. It's not just an attitude change. It's not just a moment face-to-face -face where I can be nice for a moment. It's something that changes within us. It's no longer holding something against someone. In fact, the mercy as defined as this, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone who is within one's power to punish. Mercy offers this sense of forgiveness. It doesn't let someone off the hook. It recognizes the sin that was brought, the pain that was brought, brings it forward, but there's also mercy. This assumes then that if we are to be kind, you see, Paul's, Paul's not making it easy. But if we are to be kind, which then looks at the idea of mercy, it's going to be difficult. It's not one of those things that's easy. And in this conversation, as he's talking about this idea of mercy, 
It's key for us to understand that he's assuming that there will be pain in relationship. That if we are to love, we need to be kind, which then assumes the fact that someone is going to one day need our mercy. We saw this last week where we understand that this passage is not just for a husband and a wife. This passage is not meant to be read at weddings and stay there just for married couples. Paul was writing to the church in Corinth about the church in Corinth about how they were to treat and love one another. And so if we are to apply this idea to ourselves, it is this room that we are to be merciful with one another that we are to be kind, that we are to be willing to suffer long with one another. When someone's not getting it and they're continuously messing up, we offer kindness and mercy and patience. Now, patience is difficult. Mercy is tough. When Amelia got hit with a cup in the head, it was difficult for her to be merciful. It's difficult for us to be merciful as well. It does not come naturally. But when kindness kicks in, forgiveness follows. To be merciful, this definition of kind, in order to love this way, forgiveness has to be a part of this love. One of the reasons why it's difficult to forgive others is because of our entitlement. When someone wounds me, they need to be wounded back. When someone hurts me, they need to be hurt back. When someone talks bad about me, I need to get back at them and talk bad about them. When someone blasts me in public on Facebook or in person, I need to find a way to justify myself and get back at them as well. Mercy is not something that we're used to. Mercy is not easy because mercy has forgiveness attached to it. Forgiveness is hard. When we want to stand up for our own self, forgiveness is hard. But love is kind. Love is merciful. Love brings about forgiveness. Now, pause and think really quickly about a brother or sister in Christ who has wounded you, who you have not yet forgiven. I'm sure we can all probably come up with a name or two or a memory of, uh, in the past that it's happened where we lack that forgiveness. God is calling you to love. And love, in this context of scriptural understanding, applies forgiveness. Kindness also assumes that we will take the responsibility for apology. So maybe there's no one that has coming to mind that you have not yet forgiven. But maybe there is someone who you have wounded who you have not yet apologized for, your wounding. There is probably someone who you have talked bad about or who you have hurt with your words to them or you've held some resentment against them, whatever it may be. There is unforgiveness within you or there's a lack of apology for what you've done. When we walk in kindness, we make sure that we properly apologize. Rob Reamer Uh, One of my professors said, our apology must match the weight of our offense. So what he's saying essentially is when you wound someone, if you hurt someone deeply, just saying, oh, I'm sorry, and walking away is not enough. You must walk alongside them. 
You must see how you can not make it up to them, but bring it to a place where you know what you have done, wounded them so deeply that you're a part of their healing as you apologize. This is a coming alongside. This is a connectivity of community, a brother and a sister, a sister and a sister, a brother or a brother. Forgiveness is vital to love. This is why the cross is so meaningful for us. Because we were forgiven our sins through the blood of Christ. Because he loved us. If he did not love us, he would not forgive us. If he did not forgive us, we could not be saved. But this should be integral, integrated into who we are as a people. Because we understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we can see the pain and the agony of the cross, which was for us and the forgiveness of our sins, it should be easy for us to then forgive others. When we walk by the power of the Spirit in this type of love, that love is kind, forgiveness will follow. If you've not had forgiveness, you have not been loving. Now, I know that's hard to hear, but it's a true fact of Scripture. If you've not been walking in forgiveness, you've not been walking in love. And so I challenge you, as you're reading through this or hearing through this passage, if God is bringing someone to mind who you need to forgive, forgive them. We need to trust God that He is the one. He is the judge. He will be the one to take care of all of that stuff. That it's not our job to hold that person accountable because we can't do anything for their salvation. Only Jesus can. We need to forgive. We need to let go and let God. I know we've heard that phrase many times. Because we all live in brokenness, guess what? I'm broken. Because we all live in brokenness, you're broken. Because we all live in brokenness, the person next to you, in front of you, behind you, is also broken. Because hurt people hurt people. Because of our own wounding. Because of our own pain. Because of our own hurt. We will eventually hurt other people. I know you're thinking, wow, this is supposed to be about love. And it's supposed to be all like, woo! Sometimes when we talk about love or scripture in general, it's hard. Forgiveness is hard. Recognizing that that person is wounding me because they're also wounded should help us forgive easier. Because when we look at people the way they treat other people, it's not just a momentary thing. When people wound us or we see people who are just hurting people left and right, it's because if you were to walk back to their past, you would see a huge pain that initiated all of this anger, all of this frustration. If you were to look at your own self and say, why do I treat people this way? And you were to walk back to the timeline of your life, you'll realize, wow, I was hurt here, I was hurt here, I was hurt here. And all of that baggage is coming to this one moment. God can bring healing to all of our past pain, to all of our wounds, to all of our brokenness, but we have to be willing to see it in our own lives and then offer forgiveness because we recognize that that person is coming at me with decades of pain. This makes it easier to forgive. 
Because we step back and we say, I am that person. I wound people. I have done the same thing. But often we're entitled. We say, no, that person has to feel the same pain that I'm feeling right now. But when we let go, and we walk in kindness and mercy and forgiveness, it's a weight that's off our shoulders. Bitterness is a root that just grows deep down into your soul that sprouts pain, woundedness, and ugliness. You holding someone with unforgiveness does nothing to them, and it does everything to you. It hinders our ability to love. Love is kind. The next thing that we can see that love is scary is because true love doesn't highlight self. True love does not highlight self. We see, here's what Paul says, love does not envy, love does not boast, it is not arrogant or rude. And I would like to say that envy and boastfulness come from the same mother, arrogance. Envy and boastfulness come from arrogance. The sense of, well, that person has something that I deserve. That's arrogance. When you say, oh, I have something that you don't have, that's arrogance. This is why Paul strings them together with this statement, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude. This is important. This is an aspect of entitlement that Paul is trying to get out of the Corinthians. Because the church in Corinth, which very much models us in the Western world, they in this church had an issue with entitlement. They had an issue of envy. They had an issue of arrogance. They had an issue of boastfulness. We'll see in a couple of weeks the idea of the spiritual gifts and how much mess there was with how, thi how much thinking they had about, I'm better because I have this gift. Oh, you have the gift of hospitality? Well, I speak in tongues. I'm so cool. Oh, you have, you have the gift of mercy? You can be real gentle and nice? Well, I have the gift of prophecy, and I can beat people up with my words. They had an issue with envy and arrogance and boastfulness. They were not loving one another. They were smearing one another all over the place. They were all kinds of different factions within the church. They needed this message, just like you and I need this message we cannot envy. When we look at what someone else has, we say, man, I deserve that. That's entitlement. That's envy. Wanting what they have and not having it yourself. Remember when I said in the very beginning, point one, that our discontentment with ourselves and who we are hinders our ability to love. We get angry with God that someone else has something that I don't have that I feel I deserve. When you are envying you cannot love. When you have this sense of that person is getting something that I deserve, you cannot be kind, you cannot be merciful, you cannot forgive. And so Paul is pushing back against this idea in the church in Corinth. Do not envy, do not boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. And here's what it's important that he's saying about this as well. It's not the stuff or the things that we have or the gifts that we live in. It's the person next to you that's more important. The person who's sitting in the pew behind you, in front of you, next to you, to the left or to the right, or the person that got caught in the snow and couldn't come to church today. That person is more important than what you have. And it's even more important than what you offer. 
That person is the most important. People are to be more important than ourselves. Christ lived this out. This was love with which he lived out for us. And we are called to be Christians, to love one another. True love does not compare either. It complements. One of my favorite quotes of all time that you've probably had as a note in the last, you know, six years, ten times, comes from Teddy Roosevelt. He said, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. Have you ever walked into a room and it just felt like it was joyless? Where you're like, oh man, this, this place feels just so lacking joy. Maybe we're all feeling that right now, like, oh man, this is a really tough sermon because I have to be kind to people. But comparison is the thief of joy. When I look at what God has given me and recognize that what I have, who I am, is a gift. I can look at others and say, God has given them a gift as well. My gift was for me. What I have is for me. But once we begin to compare, we lose that joy and that thankfulness that God has given us what we have. We begin to say, well, why aren't I like that person? Why, God, I've prayed, I know I've prayed more than that person. I know I've been in church a lot more than they have. I know that I have sung more worship songs or listened to Caleb much longer than they have. Why in the world are they getting that? See, all of a sudden you lose your, thanks, your, thank, your thankfulness and your thanksgiving and your joy begins to be depleted because you are comparing. This also moves into this idea not just of comparison but of competing. When we're not living in mercy, when we're not living in kindness, when we're not living in forgiveness, when we're living in arrogance and boastfulness and envy, we begin to compete with one another rather than complement. We are called to complement one another, not compete with one another. Paul Tripp, a pastor, he says this, which I think is very telling. He said, if you find pleasure in the battle and you love the kill, it's probably not God's glory that's driving you because he is slow to anger and lavish in love. When you're in an argument with someone, is it your goal to be right or is it your goal to be righteous? When you're having a conversation with someone and they aren't seeing the way, the way you see it, is your goal to be right or is your goal to be righteous? Are you fighting for their heart or are you fighting for being on top? Is the battle what gives you excitement? Well, then you're probably not living in the spirit of what Christ has for us because he is slow to anger and lavish with love. Paul Tripp will continue this statement. He says, I think the toxic reactivity of Christians often toward other Christians is a constant warning to us that the kingdom of self does a good job of masquerading as the kingdom of God. I think the kingdom of self does often masquerade as the kingdom of God when we try to have these arguments with people and become right. We want to be on top. We want to win. But that's the kingdom of self. Love is kind, love is patient, love is merciful, love is forgiving. It doesn't mean that we can't have good, strong arguments. We see in Scripture that Paul and Barnabas, they had some very intense fellowship. If you look at that passage in Scripture where they had an argument, it was a strong argument. It wasn't just like, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, okay, bye. They probably were yelling at each other. And that, that, that happens sometimes in relationship. Confrontation happens. 
But forgiveness and mercy and grace and kindness should be a part of all of that. We should care for others more than we care for ourselves. And when it comes to this idea of comparison or competing, I confess myself to be a failure at this often. I, I hope that I never come across as if I've achieved certain things. But in my life, I, I have found, and this is probably why the comparison is the thief of joy is such a powerful quote to me, is because I often find myself comparing myself to others. I have friends who do traveling and they, they do speaking. I have friends who have really best-selling books. I have friends that do all these things, and I look at that and say, man, why isn't that, why, why don't I have that? Have you ever been there? Come on, let's be honest. Everybody been there? All right, maybe 10 of us, okay. The rest of you are super holy. But I find myself having that sense of competition, of comparison, where I want to be better because they're better. Rather, I should celebrate what God is doing in their lives. Have you celebrated what God is doing in someone's life recently? Have you stopped and, and, and allowed the Spirit to say, I'm comparing, I need to stop, and I need to celebrate? God is doing some wonderful things in our midst, in your life, in my life, and we should celebrate that one another in one another and not become envious, not become jealous, not become competitory or comparing, but we should celebrate those things. We should look at what God is doing in us and be grateful as well. If you, I don't know if you are a journaler, sometimes I journal my prayers, and I like to go back and look and see what God has done. It's easy for us to forget. We pray for something, God answers, and we move on. But when you write it down, when you write down what you've prayed for, and you go back and you say, well, God answered that, God answered that, God answered that, and we might think, man, God never answers my prayers. But when we go back into our journal, we can pinpoint everything he's answered and say, wow, he really does love me. He really does hear me. When I call, when I cry, he hears me and he answers. That's powerful. What is God doing in you? Gratitude is one of those things that when we look at what God has given us, it can erase a lot of sin within us because we thank God for what he's given us rather than being jealous about what someone else has. A.W. Tozer, his words always strike me. He says, the man who is elated by success and cast down by failure is still a carnal man. When it becomes all about what we have, when it becomes all about our success, when it becomes all about us, our entitlement, about what we feel we deserve, we're still living in our carnality. We're not living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We're not living in the fullness of the love that God has for us, for you, and for me. I know the two main points that I hope you leave with today are the importance of forgiveness and the importance of not highlighting yourself because it's not about us. It's not about us. We cannot love when it's about us. True love looks after others rather than after self. We must live this love with kindness and humility Love focuses on the person, not the peripheral stuff. Love forgives. Love apologizes. Love offers kindness where wickedness would be easier. Jesus died a selfless death and considered himself nothing for us so that true love looks after others rather than after self. This isn't just in 1 Corinthians. 
chapter 13. This shows up in the book of John. This shows up in the book of 1 John. Those are some of my favorite books of the Bible because there's a fullness of God's love that is described in John and in 1 John. And we see that it's not about us. We are known by how we love one another. Do you want this kind of love? Do you want this kind of love? It's okay to talk back, right? Closet ameners, it's okay. Do you want this kind of love? I do. But it's scary. Because in order to receive this type of love, we have to offer this type of love. We have to be people marked by kindness, mercy, grace. And that does not come easy. May we live for Christ, like Christ, and love like Christ. Let's pray. Father, this type of love is scary. We don't deserve it. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll give us the ability to love the way we're called to love. That your spirit will so fill us that even now, those people who we have been holding unforgiveness against, that we will choose to forgive. I pray that you will cause us all, myself included, to surrender our entitlement at the altar of Christ and choose to live and love for others above ourselves. In your name, amen.